You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are a number of crows flying about here. The scientific name is Corvus. They're pretty impressive birds. This one on the sidewalk is is pretty big. Crows are known to be clever, but what does that mean exactly? Well, it turns out, as you'll hear, they can recognize people, including you and including me right here. I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology. In this episode, thoughts about thinking. As an evolutionary biologist once said about humans, we think, therefore we are, big-brained. Or is it the other way around? Are reasoning and rationality unique to Homo sapiens, and are they the same thing as thought? I mean, crows make tools, and they're scary smart. Engineers are busy creating cogitating computers. Intelligence abounds. But which of these entities are actually thinking? It's thinking about thinking. Okay, let's uh, check in with Molly on our cell. She's been left alone with those crows for a while now, having a crow's encounter of the third kind. Hello? Molly, it's you. (laughs) Hi, Seth. Oh, you were able to track me down. I was, I was. So are you enjoying the company of birds? There are crows out here with me. Some of them are flying overhead. There are a few here on the uh, sidewalk that are kind of eyeing me with interest. I I don't know what it means. It probably means you have food. Do you have food to offer them? I have a little bit of popcorn I've thrown that down. Well, all right, that that's good. And, and and is it obvious that these birds are smarter than your average bear, for example? Well, I don't have a bear here to compare them with. Oh. And um, But, you know, I'm willing to stay here until I uh, figure out what's going on in their minds. So, well, I, I just hope that they're not all sitting in a row on a wire looking menacing, are they? <laughs> See you soon. All righty. Bye. Bye. Well, we can only blame John Marsluff. Molly's discussion with him prompted her to go out and meet these winged wizards. John, can you please introduce yourself? Sure thing. I am John Marsluff, and I'm a professor of wildlife science at the University of Washington. Dr. Marsluff has done breakthrough research on crow and raven behavior. His particular interests are how they communicate, how they organize socially, how they forage for food. It turns out they are very smart birds. But just because they're clever, does that mean they can think? At the very least, Dr. Marslow's close observation of these avian Einsteins is helping to turn the term bird brain into one of high praise. Judge for yourself. Dr. Marslow describes an experiment in which a crow named Betty was placed into a cage with a narrow tube that contained a little basket of food. Also in the cage was a piece of straight wire. Betty was a New Caledonian crow and adept at building tools. So when Betty was presented with this tube of food with a basket in the bottom, she grabbed the piece of wire, straight piece of wire, not something she was used to, and started using it like it might be a spear to get that basket. That didn't work, so she immediately pulled it out, stuck it in the duct tape that held the tube to the grounding piece, and walked it around in such a way to lever a hook out of it. 
and then use that hook in her bill to pick up the basket inside the tube, pull it up out, and get the treat inside. So what Betty did was she fashioned a tool. She took a wire that was straight. It didn't work. So she created a hook at the end of it. Now, is this something that she would have done out in the wild? I think she would have fashioned a hook out of a plant stem in the wild by picking some of the fronds off of a fern-like plant pandanus that they have there. So she would be familiar with the concept of a hook to grab things out of reach, but she wouldn't be familiar with wire necessarily, no. Can you put this in context of just how remarkable this behavior is when we put it in the context of tool manufacturing in the animal kingdom? Sure. There are some animals that use tools such as rocks as a hammer or perhaps as an anvil. There are other birds that actually use our part of the environment as a tool, like some crows in Japan that will put nuts in front of cars to have them run over those. But there are very few animals, and really chimpanzees, maybe some other primates and humans are the only known besides the New Caledonia crow to actually make a tool and to make several kinds of tools. They make straight spears and hooks and a variety of different tools to suit a particular need. How you have described what the crow is doing in talks and in writing is that the crow is demonstrating insight and understanding the nature of a problem and then figuring out how to solve it. Is that different from instinctual behavior? Is that a kind of instinctual behavior? Or how do you describe this kind of behavior in terms of what's going on in the brain? Yeah, it's certainly not instinctual. I would say it's an activity that requires higher level brain processing to accomplish it. So the higher level brain processing means involving circuitry in the forebrain, such as we have, that links experiences with uh, feedback from an activity and the place that an individual animal is in to solve a particular problem. So this is a very sophisticated cognitive task that the bird's doing to not only understand what's needed, but then to carry out the motor patterns, the muscle moves, to be able to make that tool to solve the problem. Now, just so that we're clear, what is an example of instinctual behavior, which this was not? So an instinct is a behavior that really is fully programmed in the animal when it's born. It's it's held in its genes, and the genes command the animal to do sometimes quite remarkable behaviors, such as with a monarch butterfly migrating from North America down to South America or Mexico. In contrast to an instinct are learned behaviors, and they can be very complex, like learning an individual's face, like our crows do, or something quite simple, like imprinting on a particular representation of a species so an animal knows what species they are. Oftentimes, a young animal born in a nest imprints on their parent, for example, and learns that that is what I am. So instinctual behavior is something that you're born with, whereas learned behavior is something that you learn, and imprinting is a form of learning. That's correct. And what is it that the crows are doing? Crows are doing really high-level cognitive processing and and learning of very complex relationships. So they're using lots of their different experiences and, and associating them with emotional responses as well as sensory input to learn complex relationships. Could you give us another example of, of the crows demonstrating this higher-order learned behavior? Sure. A good example in our studies have been the responses of these birds to particular people. So they learn that some people are proven providers of food for them. These are people that enjoy walking each day and feeding the crows a little snack here or there. The crows know these people. They've learned that individual's identity and that individual's habits in terms of the timing and places that they go to walk. And they will wait for that individual to come out of the building where where the person works or lives. And they will anticipate the moves that that person is going to make along their daily route because they're getting rewarded by food there. On the subject of whether or not crows can identify individuals, you have proven that they can. And you did that with a study that had participants walking through a park with and without a mask. So can you say more about what happened when you walked through this park where these crows were hanging out? Sure. So to set it up a little bit, what we did is we captured some birds, a few individuals in a variety of places wearing one particular mask. And that way, that face might be associated with danger. And later when we walk through that same place without a mask or with a different mask, something that still looks kind of like a stiff face, but it's a different expression or a different facial features, the birds don't react at all. 
But when we walk through that area with the mask that we had used to capture a few individuals, they come unglued. They're diving at us, scolding, chasing us, just like they would a potential predator to try to move us out of the area and for others to learn that this is a dangerous person that you should be aware of and avoid or attack in the future. So if you walk through without the mask and they get to know your face, John's face, and they know that you're not a threat, they don't kick up a ruckus. They basically ignore me. (laughs) But when they see the individual face being worn by anybody that's associated with a bad deed, they attack that. And they are very precise discriminators. For example, in our first experiment, we used a caveman mask to be the dangerous person, the trapper. And we also used a Dick Cheney mask, which, you know, is similar to the caveman in many ways, uh, as a control face. And the crows readily discriminate between those two. Now, what's fascinating about this is not just that they're able to recognize individuals, which is also a little chilling for any Mm. of us who walk around crows, but that they pass the information on to others in their society or in their flock, I guess it would be. How do you know that that's what they're doing? Well, we thought that's what was occurring because through time, and it's been nine and a half years now since we captured a few birds here with the caveman mask, and the birds are still responding to us. And they're not just responding in the same way, but they're ramping up their response. More and more birds are responding to us. And most of the birds that come and attack the caveman had never been captured by him. And in fact, now few were alive when he actually did his capturing nine and a half years ago. So this trend of an increase in response through time and involvement of birds that had no personal experience with the danger suggests social learning. It's a form of communication. Is it language? It's definitely a form of communication. What happens with this vocalization, we call it a scold, is that the birds give this harsh rah, 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 and others are attracted to that. It's a very attractive (laughs) signal. They come in and they look to see what's the source of danger. Is it a coyote or a bear or, oh, this strange person? Okay. Somehow they identify us as the danger relative to all the other people around us at that time. And we don't know what exactly is being communicated to indicate it's us. It may be just the bird who's knowledgeable is pointing at us or looking at us in a particular way or responding to our movements in a particular way that cues everybody else. I don't think they're saying, hey, that caveman is out and again walking around and be aware. I think they're simply saying, danger, check it out. Birds come in, they check it out, and they learn to associate that dangerous situation with the person or place. Well, John, what does this say about their brains? You said that they do have this unusual activity in the front part of their brains, but does it say anything else about the size of the brain or what other connections might be made? Yes, I think there are two very important aspects here with respect to their brain. One, they are very large for their body size. So even though pigeons and mockingbirds recognize people, their brains are really as you would expect for a bird their size, if not even a little smaller. But a crow, their brains are many times larger than you would expect. They're much more in line with what you would expect a mammal or even a small monkey to possess. So having that larger brain matter, and especially the forebrain, again, where these complex associations are made between stimuli and experience and emotion, where these things are made, their brain is huge. Why would that be? Why would a crow's brain be bigger than other bird brains? I mean, what sort of evolutionary pressures were on crows? Do we have any idea? It's a great question. It's the same question we ask about ourselves all the time. Why is our brain so big? Well, I think that both of us, again, share a common driver in this case, and that's our social behavior. By living with others, you need to keep track of their actions. You need to nuance your behavior to a situation that might involve your kin or a stranger or a competitor and do very different things under a lot of different social settings. And having that social pressure drives us to be able to have a bigger brain to process and remember all these sorts of experiences that we've had with individual members of our own species, whether you're a crow or whether you're a human being. Now, this is anecdotal, and I'm, I'm sure you get many anecdotal stories about crows, but a friend told me that she had a crow that came to visit her many times. She would feed it, and at some point, the crow grabbed her car keys when she was about to leave for work and took them to the neighbors and dropped them in the neighbor's chimney, not wanting to let her go because the crow wanted her to stay and feed him. I mean, she was interpreting what what the crow's Mm -hmm. um, behavior was. But I hear you laughing. It, It sounds as though it's plausible. 
Oh, it's very plausible. I've had stories of people having diamond rings stolen by crows and taken and put up on the roof right before a wedding was going to happen. Keys are a favorite target. They've been stolen by other crows. To my knowledge, the crows haven't learned how to drive or start a car yet, but they're probably working on that as well. Well, maybe they're just going after shiny objects. Could they actually be trying to thwart the plans of their <laughs> of the humans that live with them, or are they just collecting objects? They do like to collect objects. There is a lot of anecdotal behavior about them stealing especially shiny things. I don't think it's completely out of bounds to think that this crow understood the connection between that shiny thing and the food leaving and got rid of the shiny thing. I don't think that's out of bounds. It's not a very difficult task when you think about an animal that can remember associations for 10, 20 years. These are long-lived animals. Remembering something as simple as whenever that shiny thing comes out, my food goes away because that could be the signal that she's done feeding, for example, they would do something about it. Are these birds thinking? And what do we mean when we talk about thinking? Yeah, that's a great question. And unfortunately, it's hard to be sure because we can't ask the bird, what are you thinking about? But by looking at anatomy and also some of their behaviors, I think we can conclude they do think. And the anatomy piece is interesting. There are connections between the midbrain and the forebrain of mammals and birds that allow the signals that would normally be given by the brain to go and move a muscle to do some behavior like walk or talk. There's a connection that allows those same signals rather than to go and command muscle to instead be recycled, so to speak, in the forebrain and reconsidered shaped, adjusted, and then a new command is sent to the muscles to do something. What that allows mammals like us and birds like crows to do is think about their actions before they do them and shape them in their mind, adjust what they're going to call, what they're going to say, how they're going to move, when they're going to move. And that, I believe, is the signature of a thinking animal. And birds and mammals have that ability And to our knowledge, reptiles to a lesser extent, but amphibians don't have that ability. And then finally, John, is there an experiment that you recommend listeners might do with their neighborhood crows, a gentle experiment? Is there a way to to befriend them or even just test out their smarts in our own backyard? Oh, absolutely. I think it's great to do that. It's great to engage with the animals in your neighborhood and and really see what they can teach us. Some of the things I would suggest usually involve food for the birds because they're pretty motivated for food. You can try putting out peanuts that maybe you've taken the nuts out of and glued the shells back together so that there's actually no food in there and see if the birds won't pick them up and weigh them in their bill and toss them aside, not even take them. Or give them a choice between a full and an empty peanut. See, do they always choose the right one and how do they assess it? Or maybe hang them on a string and see if they will start pulling up the string to get at food that they can't obtain otherwise. John Marsluff, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, Molly. John Marsluff is professor of wildlife science at the University of Washington. His documentary film on the intelligence of crows is A Murder of Crows, and he's the author of In the Company of Crows and Ravens. And what would it be like to be in the company of a couple of these feathered philosophers? And so all I was saying was that according to Kant, reason is the highest order of knowledge and... Hold on, here comes that scientist again. The one with the uneven gait and the coat with the tear at the hem. The sartorial habits of academics are rather slapdash. Hmm, I detect an air of melancholy. Indeed, but then who knows what he's thinking. At any rate, he's expecting us to greet him. Let's not disappoint. (laughs) Here we go again with the walnuts. Never organic, I might add. And is it too much to ask for baked brie or brandied figs? Or maybe an aged pinot? Well, maybe that's all he knows, poor chap. Here, I'll cheer him up. I'll spell out the Latin name for crow with these walnuts. C-O- Are you mad? They'll surely stick us all in a tedious laboratory. No, go for something rudimentary. I know, fix that wad of chewing gum to a stick and use it to pick up a walnut. That should be sufficient to motivate a whole new proposal to the NSF. Yeah, then perhaps he can afford a new coat. (laughs) 
people, crows are craftier than we might have imagined. But how do billions of neurons cooperate to produce higher-level thought? An engineer who has helped simulate a digital brain neuron by neuron hopes to find out. Plus, we visit a lab where they're crafting cogitating computers. Will they outpace the human brain? It's Thinking About Thinking on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, when I used to build models in my garage, the final product might have been an airplane, a rocket, a railroad boxcar. When Idan Segev and his team built a model in their lab, it was of a living brain. Now, it wasn't a whole brain and not a human one, but both those things are coming. The Human Brain Project, an international collaboration, has published the results of its first step towards creating a digital simulation of the entire human brain. And that is creating a digital simulation of a section of a brain from another animal. The lab rat for this brain simulation was the lab rat. The digital reconstruction of a section of the rodent's gray matter was the culmination of 20 years of experimental work, some heavy compute power, and a phalanx of scientists. 82 names were listed on the published paper. Well, that's a lot, but it's a small number compared to the tally of neurons that make up a rat brain, even a cubic millimeter of it. And in this cubic millimeter, there are about 30,000 nerve cells and about 40 million connections, what we call synapses. Now, you said that this is only a piece of the brain. How, how many neuronal connections are there in an entire, in a complete rat's brain? <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. So in the complete rat brain, there is about 75 million cells. Each one of these cells is connected to many others. And let's say on average, 10,000 others. So if I'm a nerve cell, I'm talking now to 10,000 other cells. And that's, by the way, one of the most amazing things about the brain is how tightly, intensely, one cell is connected to the other. And so we not only had to model an individual cell, but we had to model all the connections that it makes all other cells. So how did you decide how to model this? I mean, did you somehow reverse engineer a rat's brain? And if you did, how did you do that? I mean, nobody knows how the brain works, right? You know, each nerve cell is a very complicated element. It looks like a tree. So first we had to have the anatomy, the structure of all the 30,000 cells. The second step is to record using a very fine electrode from each one of the cells. Actually, Henry Markham and his team recorded from only 2,000, not 30,000, but 2,000. The electrical activity of each one of those cells was recorded and digitized and kept in a dictionary and a platform. And so we collected all this data and put it in the computer, and this was the result. It was a piece of a brain that is faithfully anatomically and also physiologically put together to generate a collective activity of these 30,000 cells. So what kind of computer do you run this model on? I mean, uh, uh, this is not going to run on my laptop, is it? I mean, do you need some sort of supercomputer to simulate a, a one cubic millimeter of a rat brain? Absolutely. It's a very, very big supercomputer, extremely expensive, with many, many, many tens of thousands of processors and a lot of cooling system, because just to cool this computer costs about a million dollars a year just to cool it. It generates so much heat. But eventually, it does the job. Wow, that's a cool sum of cash, I would say. So, <laughs> so, so you have this simulated part of this brain. You run the simulation. Can you tell what it's doing? I mean, is there any rat brain activity? Does this simulation have ratty thoughts? <laughs> not, not thoughts, you know, not thoughts, because yet 
it is not connected to the rest of the body and in order to generate something meaningful of course it cannot be isolated as it is now but let me explain to you and the audience for a second why do we do it i mean why do you replicate something that already exists so really we feel very strongly that in order to understand for example a disease let's say epileptic seizure or a parkinson disease or or any neurological disease something goes wrong many little things goes wrong and suddenly you have epileptic seizure and so we really want to use this piece of a digital software in order to simulate diseases now you said you're modeling 30,000 neurons and there mm-hmm. are something like 75 million i think you said 75 yes. million in, in a real rat's brain so you know that's <laughs> that's a couple of hundred times more yeah thousands yeah yeah mm-hmm. so if you got a bigger computer and bigger computers are undoubtedly in our future would you be able to simulate a rat i mean you know really the cerebral activity of a rat yes we are going towards this the limitation now is twofold first of all as, as i said even today the computer has has very hard time to simulate even this little piece and actually part of the human brain project the european human brain project is to develop computers that mimic the activity of neurons and one day even whole a whole human brain but the the present state of art of computers cannot do it and that's one aspect the other thing is that we don't really need to simulate a whole brain in order to understand diseases for example parkinson happens in a very small piece of a brain something on the order of a million cells in a very particular region of the brain we need to only simulate a million cell in order to understand a parkinson disease so so i think there will be already progress much before we simulate the whole brain but it will come one day for sure actually we completed just now a paper the first time ever a model of a human cell by the way they are very very similar to red cells so in that sense we are not so unique but we have so many of them and the complexity grows with the number but i think within the next decade two or three we will be able to simulate a whole human brain in details all right well that's well that's an interesting time scale uh, i hope to be around to see it happen <laughs> let, let, me, let me ask you the big question though i mean suppose we do that would mm-hmm. would you say that it's actually thinking or or is it just you know kind of running software but uh, it doesn't have any thoughts it doesn't imagine anything it doesn't uh, know of its own existence of course this is the most difficult question that you you may ask me i'm a very physicalist reductionist so i don't think that there is anything beyond physics in the brain so in principle at least if i could capture all the details including all the chemical reactions i mean mathematically and replicate all this and and of course you have to connect this piece of a brain to a body and this body has to behave in the real world because if you take a piece of my brain separately from my own behavior movement and senses it doesn't mean anything but if we, i think that if we shall connect this simulated brain into a body a simulated body eventually this machine as i am a machine and you are a machine a feeling thinking creating suffering i don't see why this other machine that i'm building will not be very similar to me and then you can interview this machine rather than myself idan segev thank you so very much for speaking with us with pleasure it was with pleasure Idan Segev is head of the Department of Neuroscience at Hebrew University in Jerusalem okay the human brain project is simulating functioning brains in a computer now over at IBM they're not building actual brains but they are building computers that imitate the functioning of a brain now remember IBM Watson's stint on Jeopardy final frontiers for 400 the machine triumphed over its human opponent now the next generation watson with access to massive amounts of data is being built as a cognitive computing network one goal is to help fight disease this from ibm's recent ad campaign hi watson annabel your birthday is tomorrow i'm turning 7 will you have a cake yeah i was too sick to have one last year the data your doctor shared shows you're healthy are you a doctor no i help doctors identify cancer treatments i want to be a doctor someday i can help with that too 
Seth took a mini road trip to IBM to find out more. I'm sitting here at IBM's Ambedon Research Center in the hills above San Jose, beautiful location, I must say. I'm talking with Jeff Welser, who is vice president and director of IBM Research here. Jeff, cognitive computing, kind of know what the words mean. I don't know what cognitive computing is. Maybe you can tell me. Sure. So cognitive computing, we think, really is the next generation of computing. And it's mostly focused on helping us to understand the masses of data that are coming at us right now. That, that really is the next challenge for IT. So, you know, when I think of computers, I think of them being good at adding bits together and stuff like that. If, if you tell them what to do, they can do it pretty quickly. Um, but this is more than a, just a matter of, you know, telling them, hey, here's what I want you to do exactly with all these data. I mean, does it learn from the data in some weird sense? Yeah, I think it's safe to say that that's exactly what we're going for, systems that can learn and adapt along the way. So unlike IT up till now, where it's mostly been about writing a program and then writing that program to give you the answers, where the answer is a known answer usually, and you want good computation and precision, in this case, you start with a basic program, but the real trick is to train it with lots of different data sets to enable it then to give answers that maybe are directions or recognition of patterns or this is an interesting white space. The kind of things that we do when we read texts ourselves. Uh, we don't necessarily get an answer from the first text we read. We get instead an interesting insight that then leads us to the next insight. So a cognitive computer would be fed massive amounts of data. Maybe you could define what massive means. I mean, you know, my, my hard drive at home holds, uh, I don't know, a couple of terabytes, mostly filled with, you know, videos and photos and stuff like that. But, but how much data are we talking about here in the, in the case of cognitive computing? So it clearly depends on exactly the application. And one of the challenges is you need to train it in different applications. So let's take an example, say, in the healthcare space. Uh, we, we have the Watson Discovery Advisor, which is looking to help uh, researchers who are looking for new molecules to treat diseases, new drugs perhaps to treat diseases. To do that, we train it on all of the uh, patents in the patent databases. Uh, we train it on all the medical abstracts in the journals. We help it to understand what a molecule is so it can read through those and it reads through them every week. It's doing it at a scale of millions of papers versus the researcher who does it at the scale of dozens of papers. And then the, the researchers can use that to ask questions about what molecules might be promising for treating a new disease. This sounds incredibly exciting because uh, for the obvious uh, reasons, you know, I think many people have heard of IBM's Watson computer, which was on Jeopardy and won. Mm -hmm. uh, was that an example of the same sort of thing, the cognitive computing aspect where you fed Watson a whole lot of information that might, mm -hmm. <laughs> might be referred to in a, a Jeopardy question, and then it just sort of sifts through it? Correct. So a lot of the technologies, Watson was the first start. At that time, there were about five different technologies, software algorithms and things in the background running to, to read through all that data. And it really did one thing, which was Q&A for, for Jeopardy, as you said. Today, we have over 50 different technologies running, but it continues to build up on what we started with Jeopardy. Well, you're talking about looking for molecules that might be, you know, medicines fundamentally that might be useful in treating disease. What about simply diagnosing disease? I, I seem to recall that there was some experiments years ago in which they used a computer to sort of diagnose what somebody has who walks into a doctor's office, and on average, they did better than the doctors did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so actually, that's, that is one of the areas we're actively pursuing right now with several, uh, several hospitals, how to have the system help a doctor in making diagnoses. Uh, and we, we're very careful on this. We, we really are trying to augment the doctor's capability. We aren't going to replace the doctor. We don't, we don't want the Watson system diagnosing the patient. We want the doctor diagnosing the patient. But what Watson can do is help them know the latest research that's gone out at any given moment. So the system can then take in all the, the uh, information, the clinical records, medical images uh, as well, read through the, some of the radiological scans, the MRI scans, take in all that information plus the doctor's observations, um, and it can come back with here are three or four of the top choices we think is the disease. The doctor can click on each of those and see exactly what is the material that Watson used to figure that out. What, what's the reference in the scientific journal or what's the, the background? And that then allows the doctor to be able to say, yep, that makes sense to me. And also, it can also the doctor can also say, you know what, that, that doesn't actually make sense. Here's why, Watson. So then Watson again can learn. Why did Watson think that was the answer? And there's actually a better answer for it. So this is constantly a back and forth between the system and the human. Obviously, these kinds of systems can do things 
that I couldn't possibly do with my three-pound wetware brain, and yet I still have a hard time believing that these machines are thinking. And maybe that's just a semantic argument. I don't know. But, you know, are we close to building machines that can think in the sense that we think about thinking? That's a, probably an impossible question to answer at this point. I think we ourselves don't really know what thinking is. I don't believe they're thinking in, in the way that I think. Uh, we know that they run through patterns and they try to find matches, and sometimes they come up with very uncanny answers. Um, uncanny in that sometimes they are um, remarkably good, uh, and sometimes uncanny because you can't imagine how it came up with that answer exactly. But it is interesting that a lot of the work we're doing, particularly for scaling into, say, the mobile space, is based on trying to create hardware versions of neural nets. So something that looks like a, a neural network that might be in a brain. It's still silicon and normal technologies that we use in IT, not, not trying to build a wetware version, uh, but trying to take these sort of patterns of large neural nets for doing what's called deep learning, where you are getting the system to be able to see patterns and, and come up with uh, results in a way that we think is more like the way a neural net works in your brain, but we still don't know that it's actually doing any thinking uh, the way we would think about thinking. What well, one aspect of my thinking is that I'm self-aware. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in this movie, if you will, every day, <laughs> right. and I, I'm sure the machines, they're, they're not self-aware. Is that coming? Is that something that's just going to sort of drop out of the engineering eventually, or maybe you'll have really smart machines, but they're never even aware of their own existence? We certainly are nowhere near having a machine that's aware at this point, and I don't see that as being something that, uh, that comes out in our current lines. Th this concern about whether or not something becomes self-aware is something that we should always be thinking about uh, and looking at, but we've seen no issue at this point where this is anything imminent. Jeff Welser, thanks so very much for speaking with me. Sure. Thank you, Seth. Jeff Welser is the Vice President and Director of the Almaden Research Center for IBM. Well, as we consider what these gentlemen say about thinking, Idan Segev at least says that his simulated rat brain is not thinking any thoughts because it's not connected to the rest of a body, and it's not even clear that when rat brains are connected to the bodies, they are thinking. And then there's IBM. They're building machines. Those machines, they admit it, don't think. But on the other hand, they can be very useful, like having a super-duper law clerk without having the onerous effects of it sitting around and thinking. <laughs> but you don't know that they will always be non-thinking machines. No, you don't. Coming up, machines may not be self-aware yet, but even human self-awareness is not rock solid. Science journalist Anil Ananthaswamy on what brain disorders reveal about our tenuous sense of self. It's Thinking About Thinking on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. As far as the ability to think goes, well, from what we've heard so far, humans may need to make room on the dais. Other animals, like crows, seem quite capable of problem solving, and engineers are hot on the trail of building cogitating computers. Now, whether crows or computers are actually thinking, well, that depends on your definition. However, maybe we should scooch over just in case. But are these beings able to engage in self-reflection? I think, therefore I am, was Descartes' definition of the self. And perhaps some intelligent animals have a sense of themselves, and contemplating machines will one day develop it. But for humans, at least, we know that a sense of a unified self is dependent upon a healthy, functioning brain. Brain disorders can interrupt that sense. Neurologic diseases, such as Alzheimer's and rare ones, such as Cotard syndrome, 
are revealing not just where our sense of self is located in the brain, because these are areas affected by these diseases, but that the sense of self is more tenuous than we, or, or even Descartes, may have thought. Science journalist Anil Ananthaswamy takes us into this world with his book, The Man Who Wasn't There, Investigations into the Strange New Science of the Self. Anil, people who suffer from Cotard syndrome think that they're dead. And they're obviously not dead, but they're having this experience. What exactly do they say about what they're experiencing or what they're not experiencing? Cotard syndrome is actually, um, you know, it's a constellation of symptoms. And the most striking symptom is the one in which, like you just said, they say that they are dead or that they don't exist. And um, it's a it's a conviction that is very, very firm. You can't rationally argue with them about the fact that, look, you're physiologically fine. You can hear me. You know, you can speak to me and you can make sense of what I'm saying. So you must be alive. It doesn't seem to work. It's it's a perception that seems to arise within them that they are dead or that they don't exist or some part of their body is missing or, you know, variations on that theme. So their bodies are healthy, but they don't believe that they're alive. I don't think their bodies are completely fine. I mean, they're physiologically fine, but they are. Uh, cotards is often associated with very deep depression. So uh, people with cotards can be extremely depressed. And what happens if you give them evidence that they do exist? You show them themselves in a mirror or or pinch their arm? It doesn't work. Um, and that's the point. It's not open to rational debate. And uh, recent studies uh, kind of explain why that might be so. So there's a network of brain regions that are responsible for awareness of our own self and awareness of our body states, this so-called internal awareness network. And in people with cotards, the metabolic activity in this network seems to be really low, um, almost down to the levels that are seen in patients who are in a vegetative state of consciousness. So obviously something about the way they perceive themselves, their own self, their own body state is very, very impaired. But there's also another set of brain regions, the lateral frontal lobes, which are involved in rational thinking. At least in this one case that was studied, uh, they found that even that brain region had very low metabolic activity. So it seems like the lack of activity in the internal awareness network is creating kind of a damped down perception of one's own self and one's own being. And somehow that leads to a perception of not existing. And then because of the damage to the lateral frontal lobes and impaired thinking, they end up unable to kind of talk themselves out of that perception. So you can't rationalize with them at that point once they are feeling like that. Well, what does it mean to have a sense of the self then? I mean, it has to be more than physically you can touch yourself, right? I mean, you know that you have pain. You can kind of feel your body parts. What else does it mean? Um, so that, that aspect that you just mentioned is what can be called the bodily self, the fact that we feel like we are in a body and we can you know, feel our various sensations. We feel like we occupy a certain volume of space that is the body. So all of those things go towards the bodily self. But there's also kind of a cognitive uh, aspect to our self, which is the story that we have in our heads about who we are. So if somebody were to ask you, who are you, you're very likely to tell them a story about yourself. And that story is our autobiographical or narrative self, which depends on long-term memory, episodic memory. Um, that narrative is not necessarily only cognitive, it's also embodied. A lot of what we are is actually in a form that can't be necessarily cognitively recalled. But it's there. It's, it's an embodied selfhood. How much of our understanding about the brain has come about by studying the people who have brain disorders? In other words, we wouldn't understand that those parts of the brain were devoted to those particular sensations if they didn't break down. Um, yeah, uh, to some extent that's very true. Like if you take out-of-body experiences, for instance, by understanding what might be happening in the brain when we have out-of-body experiences or which parts of the brain are impacted when we are having out-of-body experiences, we begin to understand how we have our normal in-body experience. Can you give an example of an out-of-body experience? Experiences come in a variety of forms, and the classical out-of-body experiences when somebody says that they have left their body and are viewing their body from, say, the ceiling. I talked to one person who recounted when she was uh, having her fourth child uh, and she was someone who didn't want to take painkillers and had a home birth and uh, the pain got so extreme that she felt that she left her own body and uh, was watching 
her delivery from a different vantage point. It was almost like that extensive pain kind of triggered that out-of-body experience. So it has a kind of adaptive value. Um, it can be argued so, yeah. It's not yet clear. Pain seems to be definitely one trigger. Uh, intense pain can uh, lead to out-of-body experiences, yes. I wonder if you could tell us about people who experience body integrity identity disorder. Now, these are people that believe that certain parts of their body aren't theirs. What do they actually say? What do they claim is going on? And that's exactly what they're saying. They're saying that some part of their body, it could be the extremity of a leg or an arm, is not theirs. It doesn't belong to them. It feels some like it's somebody else's. It feels like uh, it's an alien part of their body. One of the guys I talked to, the way he phrased it was he, he said it felt as if my soul doesn't extend down into my leg, that part of the leg that didn't feel like his. And did he always feel that way, or one day he felt like he had an imposter leg? For In his case, it wasn't always. I think it started in his teens. He doesn't recollect any particular incident or day that it began, but I think it crept up on him. Um, there are people who say that they have felt like that from their earliest memories, from when they were kids four years old, five years old. There are others for whom it starts later in life, so it's not at all clear why it happens. Now, you spoke with this gentleman before and after he had his leg amputated, and did you have the impulse of wanting to talk him out of having it amputated? Um, No, no. my, My role, honestly, was just to understand why, you know, he was doing what he was doing, what uh, I took his suffering or his claim at face value. I didn't doubt him because by then I had talked to a few patients who have this condition and I had also, you know, talked to the scientists and uh, I'd understood that this was a real concern for them, that they really did feel very strongly about not having that alien body part. It, It was a cause of a lot of suffering. What's not clear is why this comes about, whether it's purely neurological or as uh, others would claim, it's you know all in the mind. You know those kinds of things are not yet clear, but the fact that they feel like that and the fact that they suffer is sort of not disputable at this point. I think that there's definitely a certain amount of suffering going on. You spoke with this gentleman after he had his leg amputated. How did he feel? I mean, I I remember talking to the surgeon. Um, just after the surgery, and the surgeon told me that, look, when you're going to meet him tomorrow, you will see something that usually will never happen with a person who's had a leg amputated. Normally, when people have had an amputation because of an accident, they are very depressed, and a lot of them will never walk again. They will uh, stay in their wheelchairs because it's such a traumatic thing to lose a leg or an arm. Whereas uh, the surgeon said, when you meet uh, this guy, you will be surprised at how quickly he'll be up and about because he didn't want that leg in the first place. And that was exactly the case. Like within a day of such a major surgery, he was crutching to the bathroom and back. And uh, I asked him how he felt and he said he was fine. Well, Anil, what sort of ethical considerations are taken for such a, a surgery? I mean, Doctors need to be very careful, don't they, going into a surgery where someone who is healthy, has a healthy limb, wants it removed? Yeah, I mean, there are big ethical concerns. You you can't get this surgery done in the U.S. Uh, so absolutely, and I think the debate is ongoing among doctors as to the ethics of a procedure like that. So, you know, people who get this done do have to do it elsewhere. Well, when we talk about the idea of the self, What does this research suggest about how solid our perception of the self is or how precarious it is? You know, I realized after writing this book and um, talking to all the people who are suffering from various kinds of neuropsychological conditions is that the self is very fragile. I mean, it can go wrong very easily. So at the same time, it's incredibly robust because... You know, by and large, the brain seems brain and body together. I, you know, we should always make the point that the body is as involved in giving us our sense of self as the brain. They they work in concert, and uh, you know, the whole system is also extraordinarily robust. But it doesn't take much for that robustness to uh, get destroyed and then the sense of self getting perturbed in some way. Did neuroscientists talk to you about why we have a sense of self in the first place or how it came about? Is it something that arises due to complexity like consciousness might? So the sense of self uh, 
is something that seems to be built up from the body up. So I think the more primitive aspect of our sense of self is just the sense of being a body, here and now, feeling the sensations, and potentially many animals have that. And then, you know, we, we get cognitively more complex and we develop this kind of consciousness that allows us to travel back and forth in time within our own minds and what philosophers call autonoetic consciousness. And, you know, we have an autobiographical self, a narrative in our heads about ourselves, which requires memory systems, long-term memory systems. So, again, we don't know uh, whether animals have that kind of memory or whether they have that kind of self. We can't interrogate them and ask them. No, but they've done experiments where certain animals, elephants, um, certain primates can look in a mirror and seem to be able to recognize themselves. If you put a dot on their forehead and they look in the mirror and they see that there's a dot there. Yeah, I mean, um, the the mirror test is... uh, also controversial in the sense that some animals pass it, but then many animals don't, and then you have magpies passing it. And so if it's the size of the brain that's involved, then the magpie, you know, no one knows why a magpie can do it, whereas many of the other bigger animals don't. And also the test is controversial because the mirror test involves vision, and it's very unclear whether vision is the primary modality for animals to process their own selfhood. It could be, you know, olfactory. They might be distinguishing self from other by using smell much more than they use vision, and we have never tested that. Anil Ananthaswamy, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Anil Ananthaswamy is a science journalist, a correspondent for New Scientist, and author of The Man Who Wasn't There, Investigations into the Strange New Science of the Self. So what we've heard in this show is that humans are the only entities, if you will, that we know think. But there are other animals that are clever, that are ingenious, that can solve problems, that can make tools, all these things. But do they think? We don't believe they do. But all these approaches to understanding the process of thinking and being self-aware may eventually lead to uh, a second entity on the planet that can actually think and knows that it can. Thanks to the deep thinkers who helped produce this show, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to thinking about thinking. And if you'd like to hear other episodes of Big Picture Science, you will find them on our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer listening to over-the-air radio because you just like thinking about the idea of filling space with electromagnetic radiation, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and uh, do you have a comment, a criticism, a suggestion? Throw in some faint praise and then email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. But reason was the driving force of the Enlightenment. And, oh, blast, it's that woman with the empty peanut shells again. Ah!